Uh, Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 18, uh, famously rebuked his disciples, if you remember, uh, when they tried to stop people bringing babies and small children to see him. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Uh, What does this and these other things that we've been reading today mean for our practice of baptism uh, in the church? If you were here last week, uh, if you weren't, you can find out things online, and it might be worth doing on on this occasion. Um, In our short series on the sacraments, we were thinking about the meaning of baptism, this visible symbol that Jesus has given the church for all of his people, the once and for all sign of belonging to the people of God in Christ down through the ages. Uh, So if last week's question was, what is baptism? Then today I want us to think a little bit about the when, the how, and the who. The how is relatively straightforward, to be honest, so I'm not going to labour that one. Baptism is with water. Uh, You need to get wet. Uh, How much water uh, is a little bit debated, but I want to say much less important. And while there are people in churches who insist that dunking is what is needed, and others who insist that pouring is better, uh, it's hard to prove either of those things uh, from the Scriptures, uh, which is why in the Church of England we don't make a hard and fast rule. Uh, You need to have been baptised with water. And as long as the baptism is set in the context of faith and is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28, then we are good to go. Uh, The who is also, I think, pretty uncontroversial, at least in principle. Uh, As we saw last week, baptism is for all of us who are Christian believers. All Christians. The phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4 is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's for every person who is part of the household of faith. All who are included among God's people in Jesus Christ. Uh, Because as we heard last week also from 1 Corinthians 12, we were all baptised by one spirit to form one body. And the baptising with water is the outward sign of that. All Christians, no exceptions. If you're a Christian believer and you haven't been baptised, please do speak to me uh, later on. I'd love to talk to you about that. And so then we get to the when. And we do need to think about this one a little bit today. Uh, Not because we're unsure about what we do as a church here at St Luke's. Uh, I want to say I think we've got good reasons to be confident in our practice and to joyfully celebrate our approach. But because the timing of baptism, and particularly when it comes to babies and young children, uh, is something that not all Christians agree on, as I'm sure most of us are well aware. So why do we do what we do? And how do we relate to other Christians who think differently to us on things like this? Um, Why, first of all, do we baptise children, including very young children, here at St Luke's? I wonder what answer you would give to that question if someone were to ask you, perhaps uh, one of your Baptist or Pentecostal friends, what are you doing? Why is that your practice? Well, there are various things we might say. Uh, The first one, just by way of setting the context, would be to make the point that infant baptism was never seriously questioned in the early centuries of the church. Now that, of course, is not proof that our approach is correct. Um, not everything the early church did was right. And all of our practices, all of our worship and our teaching always needs to be tested against the words of Jesus, against the scriptures. Uh, because sometimes the church gets things wrong. 
We don't have to think too hard to think of examples of that from history, probably, do we? But at the same time, we don't interpret the Bible on our own. Uh, and in fact, one of the most important tests of whether an interpretation of the Scriptures is correct or not is to look at what the church believes these Scriptures say. The church around the world, the church down through the ages. And a good rule of thumb, if you find yourself thinking that the Bible says something which is at odds with what most Christians in history have thought, is to be quite humble in assessing who may have got it wrong in that case. That's not to say that the majority cannot be wrong, um, but we don't interpret what the Bible says in a vacuum. And the fact is, as far as we can tell, um, in the early centuries of the church, in fact, most of the way um, through the medieval period, uh, there is very little questioning that baptism is for all believers, all believing adults, and for their children. A big part of this is surely because of the baptisms of whole households that we read about in the New Testament. Uh, so that's the second thing I draw, draw our attention to you. And as I said, there's a great story there in Acts 16 with all kinds of elements to it. But just for this morning, uh, the thing I'd like you to notice is what Luke says as he writes this passage about what happens to this prison officer from Philippi and his family. Um, he's witnessed the power of God for himself, hasn't he? Uh, he's got these prisoners, Paul and Silas, locked up in his jail, and they are rescued by the Lord through this earthquake. And in verse 32, Paul and Silas tell them about Jesus. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And then in the next verse, we're told, at that hour of the night... The jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all the household were baptised. The question we have to ask ourselves, I think, is this. Is it credible that Luke's phrase, all the household, excludes any children who would have been there? And I want to suggest that's not credible. Now, this is far from the only time in Acts where this happens. In fact, there's another one in the same chapter. If you glance back, if you've got it open in front of you there, to verse 15 and the account of Lydia, uh, you'll find that members of her household were also baptised. Uh, don't look at it now, but you could find Cornelius's household having a similar experience in chapter 10 and the household of Crispus later on in chapter 18. Uh, in the modern West, this society in which we live, this culture uh, that we have grown up in and been formed, we are quite used to thinking about, lives, about life in quite individualistic terms, aren't we? And we don't notice it most of the time um, because we're, just, we're like goldfish in a bowl. This is the, the water that we swim in. Uh, so things like you know, personal autonomy and choice uh, are things which are emphasised in our culture. And there are, there are great gains with that, but also some losses. Uh, we mustn't forget, we need to remember that it's not the same way that all cultures have thought of life through history. In fact, many societies around the world today have a far more corporate, family, community way of looking at life than we do, those of us who are from Europe and North America. This was certainly the case in the ancient world, both in Israel and across the Roman Empire. Uh, these places where we read about the gospel spreading in Acts 16 and the chapters around it. We may hear about a household being baptised, and our question might be, what, even the babies? But to a family in Philippi, or Jerusalem, or Rome, the question would make more sense the other way around. They're now part of a believing family. Why wouldn't they be 
baptized. If Jesus welcomes children as models of receiving, models of receiving the kingdom of God, um, and if Peter, as we heard in our reading last week in Acts chapter 2, can say of the gift of the Holy Spirit, this promise is for you and your children and all whom are far off, uh, then doesn't that challenge our assumptions that you have to be old enough to be included in this way? Now, again, I said this last week, but I think it's worth saying again. Of course, in order to be saved, any young child baptised as part of one of those households in Acts or here at St. Luke's still needs to come to faith in Jesus for themselves. That is vital and important, to claim those promises made in the waters of baptism. But for children of believers being brought up to follow Jesus, there is every reason to trust that Jesus will do this and have that as our default rather than the other way around. Um, I might also add, uh, again, this is not a proof, but it's just something to notice, that there are no examples in the New Testament of the children of believers being baptised later on in life when they come to faith. Uh, why is that? Well, maybe it's just not mentioned. Or maybe it's because well, they would have been baptised as part of a Christian household when they were younger. Uh, baptism is of households. Um, a third thing to say is that baptism is the sign of the covenant people of God. Uh, we could have a whole sermon on this one, probably a whole sermon series, so uh, forgive me for just making a few comments. Um, in the Old Testament, children were always included as part of God's people. Um, the whole nation, in Paul's words again, uh, this time from 1 Corinthians 10, passed through the Red Sea. They were all baptised into Moses, is what he says. Now that doesn't, of course, mean that all of them were believers. But they were treated as believers and included in the covenant people right from the start. Uh, what was the Old Testament sign of the covenant uh, given to Abraham in Genesis? Well, of course, it was circumcision, wasn't it, for all male boys. Uh, and in the, the other passage we just heard read in Colossians chapter 2, there is something of a parallel drawn. Uh, between baptism and circumcision. It speaks of believers being circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Those tricky words to understand, aren't they? Not speaking clearly of a physical operation, but a change of heart by the work of Jesus. Now, we need to be careful we don't push the analogy too far between circumcision and baptism. They're not the same. Uh, members of the Old Covenant people of God in the Old Testament, uh, that was something which came automatically by birth. So circumcision in that sense could be given confidently on the eighth day to all male children. Whereas membership of the New Covenant people of God in Christ does not come by natural birth, does it? I mean, John chapter 1 tells us that. We read it at Christmas. It comes by faith. And therefore, it's not an automatic given in quite the same way for the children of believers. Uh, no child in that sense qualifies for baptism by birth in the same way as in Old Testament Israel. There are differences. There are some obvious differences, of course, between circumcision and baptism. We shouldn't overstate the case, but we shouldn't also miss the similarities either, I want to say. Ways in which New Testament baptism is reminiscent of Old Testament circumcision. Uh, it's once for all for life. You can't be circumcised twice. Don't think about it too hard. Um, it is the visible sign of membership of God's people on earth. Uh, it reminds all its recipients, all their lives, of the promises of God that he's made towards them. 
And in fact, in some ways, the most helpful way in which uh, there is a parallel between the two uh, in the Old Testament is in the circumcision of the two sons of Abraham. Uh, you may remember Ishmael and Isaac, and then the two sons of Isaac, who, again, you may remember are called Esau and Jacob in obedience to God, perhaps rather than the, the, the more general later circumcisions in Israel. Um, the natural children of Abraham and Isaac uh, were not the automatic heirs of the promise, if you remember. Um, in each case, it was the younger son, Isaac and then Jacob, who inherited the promise by the direct intervention of God. The Lord knew this all in advance. Their parents didn't. And so both sons in both generations were to be treated as heirs from the start by their parents. And they all received the signs of God's promise, even though for some of them it would turn out otherwise. In some ways, that's quite a helpful pointer to the way we think about what is happening when we baptise babies in the font over there at St Luke's. We're not making assumptions, but we are trusting the Lord for his promises. And so the last thing I'd say on this, fourthly, is something about real life. How do we treat our children? We treat them as believers as they grow, don't we? Um, it makes sense for us, uh, who are part of God's people, who've come to him by faith, who've been baptised, to bring up our children as believers, to treat them not as unbelievers outside the church until they've made a specific decision for themselves, but as believers belonging in the family of God unless and until they make a specific decision not to believe, which we pray will never happen. Um, that's not just a statement of what we should do, by the way. I think it's a statement of what most of us who have children in the church actually do do. You know, when, when our children were very small, it's quite a while ago now, in, in my case, um, will be for some of you as well, you know, we read the Bible with them. We taught them to know God as their father, um, that he loves them. We taught them about praying to him, and we practiced that with them. We brought them to church every week because this was their family. Uh, not a family we hoped that one day they might be able to join to, but the family into which they had been born, because it's our family. Uh, again, it's a corporate thing, isn't it? Uh, when do children of believers become Christians? Again, you may have noticed this in your own children. It's really hard to tell, isn't it? The faith of a three-year-old looks very different to the faith of a six-year-old or a nine, 12, 15 or 18-year-old. But do we want to say that the younger ones cannot have faith in Jesus? I don't think that's something we can say at all. And so in addition to the evidence from the Bible itself and from the history of the church, I want to suggest we have another practical reason for baptizing children as well as adults. Covenant household, uh, what the church has done around the world, real life. Well, if those are reasons for baptising children, and I imagine they're also prompts for much more discussion, let me finish with a few obvious questions that you might have, we might have, as we think about these things. First of all, some of our brothers and sisters take a different view, don't they? Uh, so what do we say? Um, and just to, to make it clear, I, mean, I imagine... That will probably include some of us here today as well. Um, and that's absolutely fine. You know, people come to St. Luke's and are part of St. Luke's for all kinds of reasons. And it may be that your background is in a different denomination to the Church of England. And it may be that it's a denomination where you have to be at least a teenager, if not older, to be baptised. 
Um, I know there's quite a number of people at St. Luke's for whom that is true. And therefore, maybe this is one area where you still have some questions about why we do what we do. I may have answered some of them this morning, but I doubt I've answered all of them. Um, I want to say, number one, if that is you, you are very welcome and fully part of St. Luke's. You do not have to think the same things about baptism uh, to be part of our church. Uh, Number two, if you have children, you don't have to have your children baptised if that is not something you are completely comfortable with. I've told you why I think it's a good thing, um, but it's not something that we're testing people on in any way. Uh, Number three, I'm not interested in making you an Anglican, um, which may shock some of you. St. Luke's is a Church of England church. That is who we are. Uh, And so there are certain... You need to understand the ways in which we do things. Um, But I want you to know Jesus and to follow him here at St. Luke's. Um, In fact, I spent some time this week in preparing to speak this morning, chatting to a friend of mine who's a a minister in Leicester uh, of a a church with a policy of only baptising believers when they're old enough to make a profession of faith for themselves. I just thought it'd be interesting to have that conversation, to tell him what I was going to say and to ask him what he would say. And in particular, I asked him what was behind his conviction uh, in not baptising babies, but only baptising adults. Um, He said a lot of things. Uh, One thing which struck me was Uh, The focus on um, repentance and baptism coming together. He said, baptism is a sign of faith, and so we wait for the signs of faith. Look, for the reasons I've said and others, I don't take the same view as him. But this is not one of those things on which we need to reject those who disagree with us and say, you know, we're we're not partners in the gospel or anything like that. Really important. I'm not saying when we baptise is unimportant. It's not one of those things which doesn't matter at all. Uh, It does matter, but the way in which we practise this is not something on which the Bible is so clear that getting it right becomes a matter of salvation or division. Uh, We need to know what we do, uh, why we do it. We need to commit to it. Uh, Church order is important. Um, My friend's church has an ordered way of how they do baptism, and so do we. We can continue that debate uh, while being confident of what we're doing. I want to say I don't think either of us have a knockdown proof for what we think. There there is no killer verse in the Bible either of us can point to, which just clears this one up once and for all. And so there does need to be a little bit of humility in this particular discussion. Um, That's the first thing. Second question, what about when people get their children baptised? We've seen it happen and then they're never seen in church again. Doesn't that make us doubt whether it's a good idea to do this? Um, Well over a hundred years ago, one English vicar, back in the Victorian days, described what he called the strange and painful sight of people standing up in church as the sponsors of a newborn child, solemnly professing their desire for holy baptism, their determination to renounce the world, the flesh and the devil, their steadfast faith in the creed and their willingness to obey God's holy will. Whilst they know, and everyone else in church knows, that they neither do nor intend to do any of these things. Familiar, isn't it? We've all seen it happen from time to time. And I suspect this is one reason why some Christians prefer not to have their children baptised. You know, and, and one reason why some of my Baptist and Free Church and Pentecostal friends say to us, what are you doing? And all I can say is this, drives me mad when I hear of churches baptising babies of visitors 
who otherwise never come to church, pretty much. Um, it's a contradiction, in fact, for someone to visit a church for baptism and then not remain part of the visible expression of that which they've just been uh, initiated into. And it's why if someone ever comes to me or to Tom, uh, and they're not people who, we, who we've got to know through the church because they're not part of St. Luke's, and ask about baptism or christening, they sometimes say, we will never say no. But the first step in the process is always to invite them along to church and give them the chance to spend some time here and become part of the church family. Um, I want to say, in the end, the fact that infant baptism is sometimes misused uh, doesn't mean we should give up on it, just that we should be really careful uh, to practice it well. And then thirdly, that question which you may have asked or you may have heard others asking, isn't it better to give children the chance to make up their own minds when they get older? Uh, and again, that sounds persuasive, doesn't it? Because none of us know what our children will decide to do when they grow up, about, you know, about faith, about marriage, about careers, about all kinds of important things. Um, but as I said before, our key to, to, uh, the key to our approach is to treat children within the church as part of the family until or unless they decide otherwise, and not, therefore, to deny them the visible sign of being part of the people of God. Um, it is wonderful and good when someone who's grown up outside the church comes to faith in Jesus and is then baptised. What a great time of celebration that is. It is equally wonderful and good when someone who has grown up in bubbles and explorers and has been a member of the church youth group can stand up in church and give thanks for what Jesus has done for them. Perhaps at confirmation, perhaps in another setting. Uh, and celebrate that too. Um, in both cases, the child has grown up and made a decision for themselves. We all have to do that. The time of baptism doesn't change this. What we must never do as parents is teach our children some kind of neutral position. You know, sometimes people say to me, I just want them to grow up and, I, and, and have the choice for themselves. Now, of course, in one sense, that is true. Um, but let's be clear, if, if we teach our children that there are all kinds of valid options, you know, following Jesus is just one of them, other religions, atheism, well, that's a surefire recipe for creating unbelieving adults. And when our children are young, as the book of Proverbs says to us, we need to train them in the way they should go, so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. How many of us here today came to faith when we were young, perhaps even under 18? I suspect it's quite a lot of us. Our wonderful children's and youth leaders help us with this. Of course, it's parents who hold the greatest responsibility, and we must pray for our parents. Uh, in the end, each parent will have to decide for themselves whether to go for baptism for their children uh, or not to, and both options are respected and honoured at St. Luke's. Uh, but whatever we do, let's teach our children to know Jesus, to trust him, and to love him, uh, whether or not all of the babies are baptised or whether it's later on. As I close, there is a fourth question, and I've run out of time. It's this. If you baptise children, why not give them communion too? It's a great question to finish with, and we will pick it up over the next couple of weeks when we think a bit about the Lord's Supper. But as we close now, let us pray. Peter said, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
We thank you that that is the promise of you, our Lord, to each one of us in baptism, as you include us in your people. Give us thankful hearts, we pray. Give us confidence that you have done what you have said you will do, because we have been baptised. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.